ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Cameron Carr is a champion in a sport known as murderball. He's represented Australia in 187 games, been to two world championships and three Paralympic games, winning silver and gold. But motorball was not the sport that Cameron dreamt of excelling at when he was growing up. Cameron was raised in a family that lived and breathed rugby league, and that's where he was heading, getting a contract for the Sydney Roosters. Until one night when Cameron was 19 and just 100 metres from home, when everything changed. It took him a long time to see that there was still good to be found in his life, but he definitely got there. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Sarah. If you think right back, what's your first memory of rugby league, either watching it or or playing it? Yeah, wow, that's thinking back quite a while now. Um, I suppose it was just the camaraderie around, you know, everything that went with rugby league, not just what was on the field, but everything around it, you know, it was a a family event for us. So probably, yeah, when I think back, it was all-encompassing, I suppose, and, and everything that went along with it. And it was just always there. Do you even there. remember having to learn the rules or did you just kind of absorb them? I probably absorbed them. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Legends of League is a, is a term that gets thrown around a lot, especially in Queensland. Why does your dad, Norm, count as one? Oh, I don't know. Whose list is that? I'll have to... <laughs> not have not to, how you think of him. I'll have to check, yeah. <laughs> well, what was his league career like? Um, I suppose he had a, a reasonably successful uh, rugby league career. Uh, he played for a long time here in the Brisbane Rugby League um, through the seventies and eighties, um, and had some some success at it. So that is such understatement, wasn't he? In the first ever Origin team, uh, he was fortunate enough to be in the first first Origin team. Yeah, yeah, and he, he played for Queensland prior to that. And do you remember watching him play? Was he still playing when you were were a kid? He was. I don't remember that far back, Um, probably a little bit later, you know, when I was seven, eight or nine, I sort of remember. Um, He finished when I was was nine, so. What was that like for you seeing him play? Was it something you were proud of or was it just just what Dad did? I don't think I was paying attention. I think I was running around with the other kids on the sideline playing my own game, which was far more important (laughs) than what was going on on the field. Was he able to play footy full-time when you were growing up? What was the sort of state with the sport back yeah, then? Yeah, I, th- I think they would have liked to have uh, played full-time, but no, they had to, to manage uh, their rugby league career with, with working full-time as well. And what about your mum, Cam? Does she share or did she share the family passion for league? I think she had to. <laughs> I don't think she had a choice. Um, I think it's part... Part and parcel of marrying someone that was that was playing rugby league, yeah. Had she grown up in a family that was into the sport? No. Well, mum actually came over with um, her parents and she's one of seven, so she came over with her parents and four kids. She's the eldest um, from, from Belfast when she was, uh, I think when she was about seven. So they didn't know anything about rugby league, but then um, there was four boys in the family. So, yeah, they, they quickly embraced it. And how old were you when you started playing with a league team? I was eight, turning nine. Um, it took me a little while to convince Dad that I, I wanted to go down and play. I think he was a little bit reluctant to do so. Why? Probably now being a parent, I understand the commitments that go on with, with kids' sport. Um, you know, 
I think that was it. He was he was working. He was also playing at the same time, and he's probably like, oh, I don't want to add another. This, this family's weekend. only big enough for yeah. one footballer. Yes. <laughs> but you liked it straight away? Yeah, I, I did like it. I, I think it's probably uh, a little bit of genetics. Um, it's, it was always there, always part of your life, so it was, yeah. How big a part of your life was sport by the time you were a teenager? I think it was the main part of my life, you know. I, I went to school to play sport, right? <laughs> I reflect on that now and go, maybe I should have paid attention to some of the educational component of the schooling. I just played whatever I could, whatever, you know, I, I just enjoyed being or, or competing. What NRL team first signed you when you were still at high school? Um, well, there was uh, once another team in, in, in Brisbane called uh, the South Queensland Crushers and I first signed a, a contract with them when I, was, um, when I was 16, so still in grade 12. And was that something you bragged about to all your mates? No, I don't think I bragged about it, no. I, I sort of sort of kept it to myself, so... Why do you um, think that was? It's a pretty cool thing for, for a 16-year-old to be signed with a team. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's just part of my personality, yeah. So how seriously did you take that first opportunity then in heading towards professional football? Yeah, probably not seriously enough. I was, I was sort of... Uh, Myself and, and another group of friends were sort of asked to, to, to move on after about um, six or seven months. So um, it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, um, probably because I thought, okay, I've signed the contract. I'm good to go. This is, this is the hard part done. I'm just going to enjoy now being part of, the, being part of an NRL club. Um, so probably didn't grasp it as, as firmly as I should have. Who did you play with next then? Um, I was asked to go down to uh, Logan City Scorpions. And I spent the next 18 months down there with those guys. So um, it was a really good opportunity for me. What kind of club was it? So it's a club that used to play in the Queensland Cup competition. So, yeah, just a, just a local local Brisbane Rugby League club. And did that change your attitude to the sport or yourself as a player? I probably had a time to reflect on the opportunity that I was given and I didn't, didn't take um, seriously enough. It... It also allowed me a little bit more time just to enjoy playing, not the pressures of being in a, in a big club where everyone was striving to, to play first grade rugby league. There wasn't, there wasn't that pressure. And I just had 18 months to really enjoy playing and understand my role. Were you still dreaming about the NRL though as, as being your future? I definitely, you know, I still went down. I was still only 17 when I went down to, um, to Logan City, so still very very much forefront in, in my in my vision and my planning. So how did the Sydney Roosters come into the picture then? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to make a couple of representative teams and then must have had a good game down in... Um, we, we played a game down in, in Sydney before a State of Origin game. So, yeah, a couple of, couple of uh, Sydney clubs reached out and sort of contacted, contacted Dad. How do you remember that time? Like, were you involved in those conversations or I mean you're still super young yeah at some point um I do remember the sort of dad and I remember the Sydney Roosters one vividly because I was sort of laying down on a lounge and and dad answered the phone and it wasn't a mobile phone right it's it's a the house phone and um I just hear him say yeah how, how are you going Artie yeah doing real well I'm like okay well that's there's only one Artie in in you know um, uh, that's Artie Beetson. Artie Beetson, yeah so that's how I remember that one and then um, we, we went down and, and had a look around the facilities and decided that that was probably going to be the best 
the best fit for me. And so you signed a contract then with the with the Roosters. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So what was the the, the plan? How were you supposed to get down and, and start your time with the club? Um, well, the plan was they'd organised some accommodation for me, um, and I was to travel down there with another friend of mine that was playing down there at, um, at the time. But I got a phone call uh, the morning that I was supposed to be driving down there um, to say, hey, look, the accommodation has sort of fallen through. Um, if you can give us another two weeks, we'll we'll have something for you and we'll fly you down instead. And I thought, oh, great, I'll fly down instead of driving down. That's far more appealing. I'll see you in two weeks' time. In two weeks' time. And, and what happened before you took that flight? Well, the following week after I received the phone call, so the week before I was supposed to move down the... Um, I went to a friend's uh, brother's 21st birthday party. We decided that we were going to go out that night following the, the party um, into the Brisbane CBD. So we called a taxi. And I, myself and another friend got in a taxi, a maxi taxi, and we were waiting for that, um, everyone else to sort of come out of the party and join us. And they were sort of taking their time. So I, I went in to find out what was going, going on. So I jumped out of the cab and went back in the house and as I was going into the house, they decided that they weren't going out anymore. They were all going home. And I thought I'd do the right thing and call it a night and, um, and join them and go home. And how were you going to get there if, if not in the taxi? I, I got into a car, um, or one of the cars that, was, that were, were driving home. So um, I went back to the taxi and said, look, I'm, I'm not going into the city now. I'm, I'm going to go home and, and go to sleep. So... Yeah, um, jumped into a car. And what happened next, Ken? It was a short five-minute drive home. Um, unknown to me, I sort of didn't know the fatigue factor that was sort of at play and um, the driver had been out the night before. Um, you know, he'd had a few drinks that night but but was sort of really fatigued from um, going out the night before. So on the way home, um, he fell asleep and we, we sort of... Swerve off the road and, and rolled the car. So the driver fell asleep. Where were you sitting? In I the was car? sitting. I was sitting behind the driver. So we had a the driver. We had the front seat passenger, and I was sitting behind behind the driver. So it was sort of drizzling rain. You know, early morning. The the passenger was asleep as well, um, and I was just sort of looking out the window, just looking at the rain sort of falling on the road. Um, when I realised, hold on, we're we're heading towards the the right-hand side of the road. And then were you awake or conscious during that accident and the, the moments after? Yeah, I was I was awake when I sort of tried to grab the driver and, and, and warn him that we were sort of steering off the road. Um, remember the car sort of flipping over and then just sort of laying there in the back of the car upside down. Um, I recall the... The, the driver sort of got out, the, the passenger got out and he, he started walking off and then the driver's like, you, you need to get out of the car. Um, you know, I think we've watched too many Hollywood movies and we're expecting the car to sort of blow up. So we were concerned about that. And, and I said, look, I, I can't, but you need to grab the, the passenger um, because he's wandering off, you bring him back and then we'll work on getting me out of the car. And then what happened? Um, I got dragged out of the car... And I just sort of lay there for a bit. And because we were so close to home, all the neighbours had come out that, that we sort of knew. And um, it just sort of sat with me and, and, and sort of talked me through it. I was sort of going in and out of consciousness. It was a very surreal 
moment for me. I sort of recall um, it was like an out-of-body experience where I was looking down on, on, on myself, just going, this doesn't, this doesn't happen to, to me. It happens to people on the news. You see it all the time. Were you um, in, in a lot of pain? I don't recall the pain, no. Um, I'd sort of degloved my arm, so um, sort of ripped a big chunk out of the on my left um, tricep. So that would have been, you know, quite a bit of blood there as well as sort of breaking my neck. Were you aware about the parts of your body you couldn't move? Was that registering in, in those moments? Yes, it was. I knew that, you know, I, I couldn't get up and walk out. That was, that was very strange. Um, not to be able to do that. But, yeah, at that time I was sort of just laying sort of in the rain while the rain sort of was falling down, just um, being consoled by, by one of the neighbours. And then what, you hear the ambulance coming? I, I sort of go in and out of consciousness from, from there. I, I recall sort of going into the ambulance. I recall going into emergency. Um, but that's about it. It's, it's pretty vague from there on. And when you woke up, what... What were the first moments of waking up in hospital yeah. like? I, I remember waking up and thinking, I just had the most vivid dream that I had a car accident. It was crazy. And I, you know, um, ended up in hospital. And because I was coming in out of consciousness, you know, probably coming off the anaesthetic and, and so forth, I'd also recall looking at the bedhead going, that's strange. That's not the normal bedhead that I, that I wake up to. And that roof looks... Uh, doesn't look familiar, and then and then fell back asleep. And it wasn't until I sort of woke up again a little later on that I sort of noticed that you know a bunch of tubes coming out of my out of my mouth, and mum and dad were were there. So had the doctors already operated on you as soon as you had been brought in? Yeah, um, they had. I was pretty lucky, so I sort of went straight into emergency, then then into an operation, and and woke up, and everything was sort of. Um, put back in place. What had they done? What what did that surgery involve? <clears throat> well, they just had to put a pin and, and back into my um, into my cervical vertebrae, and just make sure that that's all sort of stabilised. What conversation do you remember having with the doctors once <laughs> you came to? Yeah, yeah I uh, conversation was um, okay. How long is this going to take? That was from I, you. I've, I've got a week to get back to training. What's what's going on? And he's like, "Oh, I, d- I don't know whether you're going to 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 uh, get the training next week." And I was like, "You serious? Like how how long is this going going to take?" So um, that was the sort of conversation I never really had. You see, a, a lot of people have a conversation with the doctor coming in and saying, "Hey, look, you're never going to walk again." I never had that conversation. They never said that, or you just <laughs> never heard it. Maybe I didn't hear it. Thanks, Sarah, for reminding me. <laughs> Yeah. But they, 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 they knew from a kind of injury you'd had that you weren't going to be able to walk again. It wasn't a yeah. question of rehabilitation. It was this, this is not going to happen. They give you, a, look, when, when you have a, um, a spinal cord injury, they probably give you a, a two-year window. After that two years, if you haven't got any sort of, um, any, any further function back, that's about it. So they give you that little two-year two window. But they, they probably know, you know, based on how many people have had spinal cord injuries before, what your outcome's going to be. And how did that reality sink in for you at just 19? I mean, did it, was there a moment when you kind of clicked or was it a, a something that took a bit more time? I don't think it still clicked 27 years later. <laughs> I'm waiting for it to sink in. Um, it's a long process. You know, some people go in and, and have an injury like this 
and just move on. It's like a little blip. Uh, for me, it took a lot. It took a lot longer. So, tell me about the experience of being in in hospital. I'm imagining were you in a, a spinal unit in a in a. I was in spi- of- yeah, I was in a spinal unit here in Brisbane. Were there other guys your age? It's a funny thing because you don't get to choose who you room with in a spinal ward. You don't get to choose the people, you know, what age people are having their accidents. So if a bed comes free, it's like, there you go, that's your roommate. Um, and for me, I I went in with, um, I think there might have been two or three people, you know, in their mid-60s that were in the room. So, you know, for a 19-year-old to go in with, with someone um, and we only had one TV between two of us, recall that, 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 was uh, that was probably more traumatic sometimes than the, <laughs> Why, than the what, injury. What, what was your um, uh, what were your neighbours wanting to watch? I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but a lot of ABC News. <laughs> There's no end to your <laughs> suffering. It's, it's, uh, there was no internet or anything back then. It was just like, can, and so uh, yeah, we we used to try and wrestle the remote and hide the remote to the TV off him a lot. God, give me give me something entertaining. Yeah. I mean, you can laugh about it now, but <laughs> what was your mood like? I mean, what what was the... I, I probably wasn't the friendliest um, person to be with. Yeah, look, I, I, I really struggled. Being in hospital isn't the hard part, you know, because everyone's in the same bubble and it's it's like this little this little bubble, everyone's the same. Um, it's, it's sort of when you go home. You know, I knew when I went into the hospital, okay, I've got a job to do. That's to, to, to rehab and to get to get out of here. Nights in hospitals can be really long though. What were what were the nights like while you were in there? I think the nights were the hardest because I had a really good group of family and friends that were always I always had someone there or you're always doing something throughout the day whether rehab or visitors. It's at nights when you're laying there and you're a little bit uncomfortable and and you know machines are going off from other patients and the 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 ward's still doing stuff that you sort of just you have time to sort of sit there and, and, and think. You know, your brain doesn't stop working and you're just like, well, what next? Were you angry? Um, I don't know whether I'd gone through that stage of grief or loss yet. Um, I was probably more confused. What was the first encounter with a wheelchair like? Were <laughs> doctors or physios trying to get you into using a wheelchair? Yeah, they're trying to get you up once you... I was because I had my um, surgery so early on, my neck was quite stable, so I was able to get up and get into a wheelchair um, pretty early on. And how did that feel? Yeah, they're not fun. <laughs> it wasn't wasn't my choice. Like, great, here's a, here's a wheelchair, but um, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice, right? Yeah. How long were you in that ward for? I was in hospital for about five and a half months. So um, I had a couple of complications which sort of prolonged my time there, but, yeah... And so where did you where did you go once you were discharged? Um, I went back home. I went back home to my parents' place. Um, yeah, which which was another little bit of a you know it's 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 a funny thing going back to a, a place where you last walked out of. Going back in in a in, in a wheelchair, just going this is, you know, the place is the same, but I'm so very different, and trying to fit in there. How well set up was your mum and dad's house for a wheelchair? Um, look, they had to make some sort of um, adjustments or change the bathroom around and, and, and maybe put a, put a ramp in, but, yeah, that's about it. So if, if in hospital it was clear that you had a job to do and you're still dealing with the overwhelming yeah. nature of it, 
What was your mood like once you're back in your old family house but in this very different way, as you say? Oh, I think that's when reality hits uh, and for me it hit pretty hard. Um, you're in a bubble, like I said, in hospital and everyone's in the same position, you know, and you go home and all of a sudden you're trying to fit into society and friendship groups and society, you're, you're, you're now in a minority, you know, so getting used to that, getting used to ever, And then everyone's life goes on as well. No one's, no, no one just pauses until you get everything right. Everyone sort of moves on and are working and, and so forth. So, that, yeah, that's when it really sort of started sinking in for me that this might be real. And friendships at that point of your life are so important. Yeah. But not many 19-year-olds have much kind of emotional maturity. What was it like hanging out with your mates? I mean, was that a comfort or was it kind of hard in a different way? Um, probably a bit of both. Look, I probably pushed a lot of people away just because, I, you know, everyone's trying to get you to come out and do the same things that you were doing, you know, six months ago because they know no different. And then you, you would, I, I would try that and you go and try it and just go, no, nah, it's it's... I'm really struggling here. So then you just start sort of withdrawing and isolating. That must have been worrying to your mum and dad. I'm sure it was, yeah, yeah. You were not letting them in either? Wasn't letting anyone in, yeah. How were you spending your days? Uh, days were spent. Um, I still had a competitive nature. So days were spent in, a, in in my room, like I would see how long I could stay in my room for or inside the house and, you know, just wouldn't go out. It's like, okay, I've got this. That's a I, really bad competition, it's, Cameron. It's, but I was winning it because <laughs> I was the winning. only one competing. <laughs> was was rugby league still a, a big part of what the family, was it on TV? Was it still, like, were you back it, in that world too? No, I, I, that, was, that was a hard part as well. You know, I had my accident in November, um, went home, around March, so the league season was just kicking off, you know, as I was going home. So you're seeing it everywhere. So I just sort of, yeah, just shut down that part of my life and didn't watch anything. Your little brother, Callum, was playing footy. Yeah. Why did you get involved? They needed a coach. So he's nine years my junior. They needed a coach. I think I'd been home for... Uh, about two years, and I think they may have approached Dad. Um, there may have been some legacy issues with Dad and coaching because he coached me and probably wasn't the, the most enjoyable. Oh, really? <laughs> time for him. <laughs> so he probably, you know, learnt from that lesson. So he asked if I wanted to do it. And what was your reaction? My initial reaction was probably crazy. Um, and then I gave it some thought and thought it may have been an opportunity for me to get out of the house. And I also roped a couple, I roped a, a, a friend of mine and, and my cousin into to helping out. How self-conscious did you feel being in front of those young footy players in a wheelchair? Um, yeah, that was a big part of why I wasn't leaving the house, you know, just very self-conscious. And 13-year-olds tell it how it is. What was your initial plan about how you'd do the coaching, where you'd be while the kids were running around on the field? <laughs> um, it's a funny story. My my initial plan was that, you know, I would revolutionise coaching and I would do it from my car. <laughs> and I would just 
somehow maybe get a walkie-talkie or something like that, and I'd call the shots from the car and everything would be fine. And then, you know, um, once the game had finished, I could just drive off. Yeah. It's a great plan. How did it go in practice? It didn't take off. It didn't take off. Yeah. Part of coaching is you've got to get out there and be amongst your your team members, right? Who got you out of the car? I think I think it was myself, or maybe maybe the assistant coaches, or, or someone. Yeah, just realised this is crazy. That's not going to work. So, were you in your wheelchair on the side of the field? Or? Yeah, yeah, just just yeah, just on the side of, side lines. And how did the kids react? How did your younger <clears throat> brother and and his teammates respond? Kids are great. They don't, you know, they they're just kids are accepting. It's not until they get a little bit older and get a little bit bitter and twisted and 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 start forming their own opinions um, or, or, or get told how to think. But, yeah, kids are, kids are very accepting. You know, they've got questions and, and I was comfortable to answer those questions, but they didn't, didn't, um, didn't skip a beat. And what about for you? Like, was it a, a bittersweet thing to be close to these young players and no doubt seeing yourself how you were just a few years ago? Um. I don't think I looked at it that way. I, I really enjoyed my time sort of coaching with them and, and, and mingling with them and, yeah. It was a really good stepping stone that I probably needed to, to start entering um, the next phase of, of my life. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Cam, when you started coaching your brother's team, what was your own fitness level like at that point? Do we need to talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> Not something you like to remember? No, no. I um, my pant size was probably a little bit larger than what I'd what I'd like, and probably wasn't doing any sort of any sort of fitness and looking after myself. So, so what conversation did you then have with a physio about what you might do to try to get back in shape? Yeah, so I, I'd moved out of home by by this stage, and I was sort of living by myself, and lots of friends were coming over, and we were we were just having a wonderful time probably not doing the, the the healthiest healthiest things and and one morning I woke up and went look this is crazy I'm I'm 20 24 I've only got one life I need to start grabbing this life and really steering it in the direction I want to go and the easiest thing for me was okay let's start getting fit again so uh when you're in hospital you get introduced to a whole range of sports and then I decided that I'd, I'd call a physiotherapist up that I had in hospital and and get into um, a little bit of hand cycling and riding a bike and what else did they suggest to you? Um, he suggested wheelchair rugby, um, and I'd been shown wheelchair rugby in hospital. And went, this is crazy. What what part of it? Was oh, crazy? I, th- I think because it was a, a a disability sport, and it wasn't really you know it, there was minimal numbers. It wasn't run at a level that I thought that you know that that's going to entice me. So yeah, he he said you know there's there's wheelchair rugby again. The program's really kicking off. We've got a, a coach that's come out from the USA. Um, the Australian team had just got a silver medal at the Sydney Paralympic Games. So, you know, a lot of funding being put into the, the program. Would you like to come down and try that again? And and uh, my answer, still pretty blunt, was 
no, I wouldn't. Let's talk about this bike that I want. I'm sensing you're not the easiest guy to work with, Cam, uh, unless you're on board. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to be convinced. Have you been talking to my wife? <laughs> so what changed? Um, I sort of parked it and then um, I was waiting for this bike to come and, and he said, look, it, it is, this, this is where the, the training is these times and uh, I just went down. Where was it being held? Uh, it's played in a basketball court, so... I was at a local TAFE here in Brisbane, and I just went down one night and went, wow. Why? Why wow? What did you see? There, there were guys just, you know, the, the, the wheelchairs disappeared. It was a bunch of guys down there competing, and they were getting angry, and they were, they were laughing. You know, there's a range of emotions that go on with, 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 with sport, and it was all happening there. So the, the wheelchairs just sort of, they weren't noticed. How soon after that did you first play your first game then? Um, I went down there and I was training for a little bit and I played uh, a local tournament maybe two months after I first started playing. And I am not great with the rules of any game, Cameron, but give me the idiot's guide to how wheelchair rugby works. Okay, great, because I'm not great either and that's why I got in a lot of trouble with referees <laughs> about the rules. So it's played on a basketball court. There's four, four players per team on the court at any one time and the objective is that you need to get that ball, which is a round sort of volleyball-like ball, over a goal at either end of the either end of the court. Um, and you can pass the ball forwards, backwards, whichever way you want. And how long does a game last? Game lasts, look, they're eight-minute quarters, but it's a stop-start sort of clock, so you might look at it around 45 minutes. Now, as I mentioned, it's known colloquially as murder ball. Yep. Why? It began... Um, Back in 1977, I believe, in Canada, um, and that was the name given to it um, by the guys that started the, the sport. And you, you, you're targeting, you know, back then you're targeting people that had just had a traumatic injury, generally young people where mums are quite concerned about them, and then someone comes and says, hey, your son, looks, he's great. He's just qualified for the murder ball team. He survived this massive yes. car accident, and now he's going to play murder ball, mum. That's right. And mum's like, no... He's not playing murder ball, <laughs> so they changed it to wheelchair rugby. But what did the murder ball name capture? Like, what, what, why was that a fitting description at all? It's probably some of the, the crazies that play the sport, right? That's probably what it captured. Well, how rough can it get? It's the only full contact wheelchair sport, so it can get pretty rough, but you pay a lot of money to, to have these chairs that are supposed to protect you. So the camber, so the angle of the wheels are as lot... It's a lot more just so you can spin and turn a little bit quicker. They have a little bit more protection around the, the front of you or the, the bottom of the bottom of the chair so you can collide a little bit more. So you're actually aiming to, to, like, how do you get the ball from each other? You're not allowed to touch one another at all, but if you can get that ball from someone without touching them, you can just take it out or, or you can hit them hard enough that the ball falls out. Yeah, but however you want to try and get that ball, just don't touch the person. And do chairs fall over? Like, do people come out of their chairs? Yeah, chairs fall over. People fall out quite a bit, yeah. We normally have someone on the sideline that will run on and, and, and pick you up. Were you nervous at first about hurting your colleagues or rugby league to kick that fear out of you? Yeah, I wasn't, no, I wasn't nervous at all. Um, if anything, I really struggled with the lack of physical contact between individuals. It was all through chairs. You know, I came from a sport where you you got to tackle someone or you know, actually collide with, with, with their body. That's one area that I struggle with with the sport. 
The way you're describing it, Cam, it feels like it's sort of supercharged bumper cars or something. You can really smash into each other that way. Supercharged, yes. Ballet? It's or ballet. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a, sensing ballet. <laughs> <laughs> is there much sledging on court as uh, people were serious? There, there, is, there is a fair bit of sledging. Um, I tried not to sledge at all. I sort of didn't want to give my opponents any sort of understanding of, of how I was feeling. Um, sometimes it, it didn't work, but, yeah, you can hear some... Some sledging going on. Is it a game of strategy as well, or mainly of of brute force? No, I, I think I think like a lot of contact sports where people just think it's all brute force. There is some strategy involved. Whether we stick to that strategy or not, it's another thing. But yeah, look, plans are always great to have, especially when you you might be struggling. You can always fall back onto to some plan or strategy. And how quickly did you realise that you were good at this? I knew I enjoyed it. I don't know if I was good at it. I knew I enjoyed it. I knew I liked competing. Yeah, like we said before, I had the tournament um, two months after I started playing and I still didn't know whether that was the right sport for me because um, in the first game I played, and this was a tournament for all types of competitors um, of any ages. It was like just come down and, and, um, you know, people use sport after traumatic injury for a range of different things, one of those being rehab or, or social integration and um, I remember there was a collision and the game had stopped and this guy was screaming out, you know, everyone stop, don't move and I sort of looked around like what's happening and saw this thing spinning on the ground and it was his false teeth and I remember looking up at my friends and family and saying, I still don't think this is a sport for me. <laughs> well, as you started playing in different sorts of teams, were you drawing on some of the same qualities that had made you a good footy player? Yeah, I'd like to think so. Just that competitive side of me, wanting to win and compete. And how long until you made the national team? Um, I think it was two years after I started playing. How did that feel to get that call? Uh, It was great. It was like, okay, well, maybe this could be a path that I can go down. I still didn't know whether I wanted to to take it to that next level and try and get on the national team and, and go to a Paralympic Games, which is the pinnacle of our sport. So to be sort of invited to to go away, I was like, okay, well, well, maybe this is a path that I can take. What's the training like in that level? What are you What are you doing beyond when you're playing the game itself? Yeah, we had a big shift in our in our training and our our, our our mindset. So we went into Beijing, and it was still pretty much um, just train as as you see fit. And we got a silver medal there, which we were pretty lucky to get. The team just had a refocus. I went, you know what, guys, if we really put in, we can create something really special here. And there was a, just a big shift. So we went, you know, and, and being professional is not about the money. It's about your mindset. And we, we moved to sort of ad hoc training where some of us were training a, 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 a bit and others weren't to the whole squad required to train, you know, six six days a week. And what, what did that look like? What were you doing? That, that was a blur. <laughs> Um, we were doing it. So I, we also had state commitments as well. So, you know, we we're up to about 10, 10 uh, sessions a, a week and it was in the gym. It was, it was fitness stuff. It was skill work. Just the stuff that any, any sporting team would, would have to do. And the, the teammates that you were playing with, had they similar backgrounds to you? Were, was that something you spoke about? Um, 
No, they all come from different backgrounds. Some of them hadn't played sport at all, you know, and used as a rehab. Went, you know, I'm good at this and really enjoy it. I'm, I'm going to go down that pathway. So from a very diverse background. And did you get close to them the way you would have with your rugby league Yeah, yeah you do. You, you know, you, you, you're travelling a lot, travelling a lot internationally, so you, you're constantly in each other's pockets and you have your roommates and you have your teammates. You're like, geez, I hope I don't have to room with this guy, <laughs> you know. You, you mentioned Beijing as your first experience yeah. of being in the Paralympics. <clears throat> How was it to travel in China? How did the locals react? Beijing was a was an interesting um, Paralympics to go to, especially for your first. So, you know, I know that there was a big lead up into it, and and I know some of the coverage wasn't wasn't great. You know, um, Chinese people were fully they fully embraced us. You couldn't move around. Like if you stopped, they would be there for a signature and a photograph. <laughs> and then you know, forty minutes later, you're still trying to get out. Going on, I, I just want to get on the bus. And you were then, you know, after this new training regimen and focusing on your diet, yeah. you, you were at the London Paralympics and you were there as co-captain. What sort of captain were you? I don't know. You've got to have to say much. <laughs> you know. So you'd really been working hard in the lead up to that, Cameron. What did yeah. you think your chances were going into the finals? Uh, we thought they were pretty good. So we, we got silver in, in Beijing to the US and then we got silver again at our, at our World Championships uh, two years after the Beijing Games. So we're really, really uh, wanting to succeed in, in London. You know, we were just like, okay, we just keep falling short every time. We've been putting in all this work and the focus was just to go there and win. And what was that final game like? It was a relief. <laughs> it's funny, you win a gold medal, you know, we have we had this uh, amazing tournament and it was just a relief in the end to go, wow, we've just won a gold medal. Thank God for that because it would have been awkward getting another silver. It been awkward. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, athletes have a whole lot of different um, rituals or processes they go through before a big meet like that or a big match like that. What was your state of mind like? What were you doing? Were you listening to music? Were you talking to friends? Were you quiet? How were you before you'd go on to a final game? I was okay. I was pretty sort of low-key and would just like to keep things lighthearted. And, you know, I know everyone has their own sort of um, ways of preparing and, and I could see, you know, probably as a leader, if people were getting stressed, I would bring some humour into it just to bring it back and go, you know what, let's all just relax. It's just a game. We've prepared really well for it. Um, but don't leave me feeling awkward. Don't with leave, that's right. If we come out of here and it's an awkward situation, I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> and then there's a third Paralympics in Rio. There is. How tricky was it getting around that city <clears throat> in a wheelchair? We, we didn't. You know, it was a funny situation. I had a friend that went over there with the federal police that was sort of looking after us. So we'd catch up, you know, every morning or so and he'd tell me about the things that were going on outside the the village and some of the weapons that were, you know, he was amazed to see. So we, we just stayed in the village. And who were you up against in the finals? We played the US in the, in the final. And what are they like as competitors? The US are just, you know, highly competitive. They're loud. There's a lot of sledging, or what's the what's the atmosphere like on the court? You just, you just want to beat them. They're just yeah. I don't think there's any team that doesn't want to beat the US just because of how loud and sometimes obnoxious they can be. So was that always clear that that was going to happen, or how much of a thriller was the final against? Yeah, I the think US? it went to triple oval time. So yeah, it was um, it was a long game. And how was the feeling at the end of that? 
we were the first team or the first nation to win back-to-back gold medals at a Paralympic Games for wheelchair rugby. So, you know, that was a it was it was a great experience. What an amazing success you've had in in that sport, hey Cameron. Yeah, so sort of now, if you look back and reflect, and 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 my time in the sport, it was like, well, it was a really, it was a really wonderful time to be a part of. Did your family come and watch any of those games? Yeah, they came over to Beijing and the and, and again to um to London. But by the time I sort of hit Rio, you know, I don't think too many family members went over to to Rio. And I, at that stage, had three kids, two newborn twins. Well, I guess um, right back when you were spending those months on the spinal ward in hospital and realising that everything you had been working towards wasn't going to happen, did you also think that it meant love and kids weren't going to be a part of your future? Um, yeah, I'd like to think that I'm pretty optimistic, but yeah, that was a, that was a lot of thought process around that. You know, you're, you're lying there just going, well, what, what next? I'm not really sure. This is all new for me. I'm getting used to a new body. Um, there were no role models really to look at or, or there was no one on TV or around that was in a wheelchair in the same situation where you could really aspire to be. So how did you first meet Kim? So I just sort of started playing wheelchair rugby um, and it's funny how things just open up once you, you put yourself out there. So I just started playing wheelchair rugby and she was volunteering uh, for Sporting Wheelies and Disabled Association um, at one of the games. So that's where I sort of first met her. And who asked who out first? I would get in trouble if, she, if I said she asked me out. No, I... <laughs> I'd say it was an organic process, Sarah. <laughs> and was it something you realised was going to be serious fairly quickly? I don't know if I realised it was going to be serious, but I knew that I was very comfortable around her, comfortable in being myself. So that was probably the thing where I went, you know what, this feels different to to any other sort of relationship. And had you always wanted to be a dad? Uh, okay, I'll say yes, but now being a dad is like, what just happened? <laughs> Did I think I want it? Yes. This is very different. (laughs) How did you know when uh, your time with Murderball was was through, when it was time to hang up your wheels? It was, um, so my, so I've got a son and the twin girls and they were, they just turned one or just over one and we were renovating a new house. We'd sort of come back from Brisbane. We had some time down in Port Macquarie and my son had started prep. And so he's bringing all these bugs and stuff home and, you know, the flu's going around. It's been around twice and not in the family. And I got up one morning um, and my wife had been pressuring me for a while, about 10 years. I was going, okay, you're having fun, but when are you going to get a real job? Um, and I just woke up one morning and I, and I was a bit bit flowy and I was at, uh, sort of finishing off some assignments for, for, for uni. And I was about to head to training and I had to, we're in a two-storey house and I had to sort of get out and, and bum down about 20 stairs and my butt was getting sore because it was hard, the wooden stairs were hard and I just went, I can't do this today, I'm done. I've had a good ride, I've, I've finished. And I went and I said to my wife, I think I've finished playing. She's like, finish what, what, are you crazy? It doesn't happen that quick. And I went, yeah, it does. I'm going to call people today and say, yeah. And I'm, like that, I'm you a, made the decision like that? Made the decision, that. yeah. 
So it wasn't all the the bashes on the murderable court. It was the wooden stairs in your own house. It was a wooden pushed stairs. Pushed you over the edge. It's wooden stairs and a sore butt. It can still be, even if it's your own choice, that transition out of being an athlete can be a really tough one. How was it for you? It was tough. I thought I'd prepared. So I was sort of, um, I was at uni and I, I was finishing up a dual degree in exercise movement science and psychology. And I thought, okay, I'll prepare for that. I'm going to start the next phase of life. But, you know, I talk about being in bubbles, like being in a bubble in hospital and and and, and, and moving to, to going home and then being part of society and being a minority. And then you're in a, your Paralympic bubble where you sort of get recognition and pats on the back and that's great. But then you go out to the real world again. And again, you're a minority, but this time you're a minority trying to find employment and, and employment that's going to be fulfilling. And so what industry did you find? What did you move into? Um, I was really lucky. So I applied for a few jobs um, and just wasn't getting anything. And then I went, you know what, well, I'm going to start at the bottom. And there was a graduate role going in a mining company and I went, I'm going to apply for that. And what sort of role? What's, what was your what was uh, starting? In, 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 in safety and health. And, you know, that's an industry that's got these remote, pretty intense sites. Was, was, were you doing site visits as part of your work with, in that mining industry? Yeah, my, my role, um, and yeah, I've had to go out, out you know, in central Queensland. And, and how was that in a wheelchair? There's not too many wheelchairs out there. There's lots of big rocks. It's rock. What does <laughs> it's, that mean then yes, in practice? Yes, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I tried to say in the office. Yeah. You, you've said a few times being a minority. <clears throat> what's that like in the workplace? It's it's fortunate enough I had a really supportive team, and it's been fine for me. But I, I know for other people, they really struggle. And like I said before, really struggle in trying to find gainful employment and employment that's going to really fulfil all of your your cups and, and challenge you. You know, I think people with disability probably get pigeonholed. And this, okay, this is, this is what you can do or this is what you can't do, which could be difficult for some. You've started doing some executive coaching uh, of your own, Cameron. What sort of approach do you bring to clients? What's your attitude when it comes to, to coaching? One thing I've picked up with coaching, and I've done a few coaching courses, you know, executive coaching courses, is, is just allowing people time to think about where they want to go and then challenging some of those norms. Um, I think it's pretty difficult for someone to sit across from someone in a wheelchair and go, no, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> You're not afraid to use that, hey, that pressure. No. You're going to tell me you can't? I, I, I'm not going to say it. I'll just probably look down at my wheels a couple of times. <laughs> so you'll use it that way, I see. What though um, are some of the more annoying or, or stupid things that you sometimes encounter when you're out and about in your wheelchair? You know, a lot of people come up and, and ask, you know, especially if I'm with someone else in a wheelchair, you know, if we want to have a race. If you want to have a race? Yeah, if we want to have a race. I'm like, oh, look, probably not today. <laughs> I just want to have a coffee. <laughs> you know, not so much now, but early on people would sort of talk to, especially if they were my wife or whatever, talk to her about me rather than going, you know, I do have a, a voice and a, an opinion of my own. It's probably a little bit stronger than hers. How do you handle it when people are treating you like that? What's your... G- generally you laugh and, 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 and um, just brush it off. Other times you sort of might be a bit, a bit more grumpy and say something back. 
Yeah. Sport has played <clears throat> such a big part in your life, Cameron, in various forms. Are there times you've hated it, though? Yeah, I was. Really, I felt quite betrayed by sport when I first had my accident. Um, yeah, but other than that, no, I don't. Wouldn't say I hated it. Do you like watching footy now, regular footy? Look, unless there's uh, a couple of cattle dogs, you know, on a show, that's all I get to watch. You know, I'll give ABC a play again, Bluey. I think you're I'm, not one of those guys watching the ABC News, aren't you? Yeah, no, no, it's just Bluey. Um, and I, I saw there was a State of Origin episode there, so. Um, it is. It's one of the best Bluey episodes. Yes, yeah, so, so I've seen that. <laughs> but you don't. You, you're not. You're not interested in watching. I, I do watch itself. it every now and then if it's on. Um, you know, my my son sort of plays Aussie Rules, and that was sort of pushing that way because it was the closest sport to our house. Like your dad, hey. You yeah. didn't. You didn't want to have to do too much driving around. <laughs> no, but now my whole weekend is full. He does. He does a number of different things. When you think back to that 19 year old those months in hospital and the really tough years afterwards, was there anything anyone could have said or done that would have helped? No, I don't think so. I pushed a lot of people away. I didn't want to hear it. I just wanted to deal with it myself, you know. Probably wasn't a big talker in going and getting professional help. So it just um, it just took the time it took, you For think? me, it just took the time just to work it out myself, yeah. Cameron, I've really loved meeting you. Thank you so much for sharing your story on Conversations. Great, thank you. Cameron Carr was my guest today. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.